Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Ghost Spider Groupies, the podcast dedicated to Gwen Stacy of Earth 65, also known as Spider Gwen and Ghost Spider, where we review her comics, discuss news, and give our opinions about all things Gwen 65. I'm Abigail. And I'm Pax. Uh, This week we don't have any new Gwen news, although we are expecting solicits in the next week, so we'll see if any new comics with uh, Spider-Gwen or Ghost Spider in, but for now uh, we have no no new news uh, this week. Um, So we'll get into what we're reading, which is the Predators arc in the main Spider-Gwen run. So what we've been doing is we've been reading through these comics. Last week we read Sitting in a Tree which was a sort of break in the main story where Miles Morales, Spider-Man, traveled to Earth-65 to track down his missing father. And together they defeated Scorpion-65 and the sort of evil organization, Silk's machinations for the multiverse there. Uh, But this week we're sort of back to the regular plot which has been going on, uh, which is where Gwen's father remains in prison. Uh, Well, I say prison, in jail, while Gwen works for Matt Murdock and the Hand to get access to Murdock's legal services and the power-ups that she needs to remain Spider-Woman. So technically speaking, at this point in the story, Gwen is powerless. She has no spider powers. She's using these little boost things that the Kingpin gives her that lets her be Spider-Woman. That's uh, that's the current sort of status quo. Um, the other thing that we get a lot of in this arc is Harry Osborn right from the get-go. And he's been missing since the first arc of this ongoing run, uh, which was uh, Greater Power. Uh, and the last we saw of him was where he took the lizard serum um, as part of his hunt of Spider-Woman. Uh, but once he discovered that she was Gwen, he uh, he ran off, instead of having made peace with the fact that, you know, she was Spider-Woman and not wanting to kill her. But but also he's um, like half lizard. And uh, that was the last we saw of him. And we'll put all of the um, links to this reading list we're sort of following and, and all of these comics in the description. This will include links to the Comixology page with this particular comic in. Um, so you know what it looks like if you want to buy it physically, but also if you just want to read it there. There's also other services such as Marvel Unlimited. Um, sort of the options you have are discussed on that same page with the reading list on. Um, so uh, let's get into the synopsis of this story. What we're going to do is we're going to uh, give a sort of brief, less than 2,000 word summary about what happens in this arc so that we're all on the same page as it were and where all our memories are jogged of what happens. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's do that. From the island of Madripoor, Harry Osborne tries to call Gwen using a payphone. Asking for help in getting through to his father Norman, still afflicted by the effects of the lizard mutagen and pursued by the ninjas from the hand, Harry is in a bad way. Gwen misses the call as she has an argument with a cop while trying to buy a snack in Times Square. The cop gets agitated and pulls out a gun, trying to take Gwen in while reporters capture the altercation on television, which the Mary Jane see live. Seeing that Spider-Woman is holding a phone, they decide to test MJ's theory that Gwen is under the mask by sending her a text. While she answers the reporter's questions about her father's upcoming trial, Gwen's phone visibly receives a notification, but Glory remains adamant that it's just a coincidence. Gwen swings away, frustrated by the police and the situation with her father. Gwen arrives at the police station to see her dad and Matt Murdock, who informs her that her dad's trial date has been moved up. Murdock and George argue over the latter, honouring the terms of their deal, but Gwen ends up siding with Murdock, insisting the Kingpin's help is the best option, going as far as to say to her father, I'll do whatever I have to do to save you, even if it's from yourself. 
outside, a veteran cop chastises the rookie from earlier for trying to bring Gwen in before, saying he should have just shot first instead. Gwen overhears the conversation, but is pulled aside by Murdoch, expresses his disappointment towards Gwen for failing to assure her father's cooperation and kill the scorpion before demanding for her to suit up at Oscorp. Murdoch, intending to intimidate him, meets with Norman Osborn atop Oscorp Tower with Spider-Woman in tow, which makes the CEO panic. Murdoch reveals that he is aware that Osborn pushed away his partially lizard-mutated son Harry when he came to him for help. Murdoch further reveals that he's been looking for a solution to Harry's problem. Enter Dr. Elsa Brock, who reveals that both Gwen's spider powers and the lizard mutagen are genetic cousins through Cindy 65's research of the alien spiders that attacked Jesse Drew. She further explains that when exposed to the spider isotopes, the lizard mutagen absorbs them and becomes a symbiotic ooze that grants host powers similar to spider woman's. However, it has the downside of giving the wearer a lethal dose of radiation, making Gwen uniquely capable of bonding with the so-called Venom due to her residual radioactive immunity from the spider bite. Gwen is understandably freaked out about having to bond with the symbiote to regain her powers, but Murdoch tells her that she needs to retrieve and cure Harry first before going there. In his agenda, her cooperation results in a winning scenario for everyone but Gwen only relents to Murdoch's plan after Norman pleads with her to save his son. Spider-Woman travels to Madripoor with the Hand Ninja serving as her backup. She later leaves them behind, though, and goes it solo to find Harry, who runs from her like a man possessed. Gwen eventually catches him, at which point he explains that she's led a mercenary he dubbed Mr. Murder Hands to them. Actually revealed to be the James Logan Howlett of Earth-65, he attacks the two. Winded from their fight, Gwen helps Harry to safety as her ninjas fight with Logan. We flash back to the backstory of Logan's history, as told by Harry who had access to his file back at his time in S.H.I.E.L.D. Logan was a legendary samurai mortally wounded on the field of battle when he was cursed with new life, a day for every life he had taken and a day for every life he would take. Despite finding solitude in the Canadian outback, Logan was recruited into the Weapon X program that stripped him of his memories, but gifted him a metal skeleton and claws. Cursed with a past he doesn't remember, Logan was recruited into S.H.I.E.L.D., where they now use him for off-the-books missions where they don't want to have their involvement noticed. Gwen notes that it would be better to call him Wolverine after her time with Laura Kinney on Earth-616, realizing the similarities. She is also shocked that such a murderous individual works for S.H.I.E.L.D. and that they would chase after Harry so. Harry emphasizes the danger that S.H.I.E.L.D. perceives him as and insists that even if Wolverine was defeated, they'd just send someone even worse. At this point, Shadowcat enters the fight, holding Harry hostage. While he dares Shadowcat to try to kill him, Gwen tries to reason with her, saying that she just wants him cured. Kitty says that she just wants the bounty on Harry, but is then incapacitated by Logan, who sees her as competition for said bounty, and they proceed to fight while Gwen and Harry slip away. Back in New York, Foggy, Nelson, and Murdoch discuss Captain Stacy's upcoming trial. Foggy does not want to let George give his testimony and asks Matt how to prevent the trial. Visibly pleased, Murdoch indicates that he has a plan. He later returns to his limo where Elsa Brock is waiting. She berates him for not giving his reasons as to why she's risking her reputation to deliver him and Spider-Woman her symbiote research. Murdoch states that he can push Gwen even farther with the new power of Venom, 
by revealing all of this information like this. Still running away from the danger in Madripoor, Gwen pleads with Harry to try Murdoch's plan. Harry insists they don't, and, as a symbolic gesture, hands her their 20-sided D&D die. The hand arrives to try to transport Gwen and Harry, but they decide to fight them off together instead, declaring one last roll. Putting the Kingpin's plan into motion, Foggy Nelson and Matt Murdock throw the trial of Alexei Sitsevich, the rhino, so that he goes free. This draws a series of reactions. A shocked and suspicious Jean the Wolf, an ashamed Foggy, a celebratory Alexei, and smug Murdock, who turns to the freed villain to tell him that his tab is due. Exiled and living on the streets, Harry and Gwen steal food from a grocery store, while Madripoor's very own Benso Bandit happens to be holding the place up. Distracting the storekeeper, Harry struggles more and more with controlling his lizard impulses, nearly eating a live rat at one point, while Gwen struggles with a once again limited supply of power-ups, and the potential danger that these petty crimes could draw to them. Gwen considers going for help in the multiverse, but doesn't want to run from what's left of her life. She once again calls Murdoch, who says that she can still come back to him, but this time she insists that Harry is safer with her and that her father will be protected by the NYPD while she's gone, explicitly choosing not to work for Murdoch any longer. In New York, DeWolf visits George in jail, where she says that she suspects that Nelson and Murdoch are up to something shady and that he isn't safe, begging him to leave the trial behind before he admits to anything on the stand but he insists that this gives him the best platform and position to convince people of the truth as they will know that he has something to lose. Talking in a Madripoor back alley, Harry asks Gwen more details about the cure for the lizard and Gwen explains it and how it will manifest venom. Harry pleads with her to try it anyway, but Gwen insists they don't know what they're doing and how they won't know what to do with the newly spawned symbiote. At this point, the hands ninjas attack, and Harry loses himself to the lizard mutagen further. Gwen realizes that the moment has come, and that she has to choose between lizard or Spider-Woman now. Wolverine and Shadowcat also enter, now allied with each other. Kitty restrains Gwen, while Logan goes to fight Harry. The situation with the rhino in New York progresses as he is brought back to jail in cuffs because he kicked over a parking meter right next to George Stacy. George pleads with the arresting officer not to do this, but he's just doing his job following orders like Captain Stacy should have done. The cop turns away from George and uncuffs Rhino. Make it look good, he says to Alexei, who knocks the officer out cold. Rhino squares up to George, grinning. Murdoch says tab is due. Arriving in the elevator, DeWolf and Boyle are on their way to visit George. They find the shift manager gone and confront the Rhino. Boyle manages to run, but DeWolf fights, but is beaten down by the bulletproof villain. Standing victorious over the assortment of injured cops, a hand ninja retrieves Rhino, and they escape. In the fighting with the hand ninjas and Wolverine, Harry Osborn has been completely consumed by the lizard mutagen, his body riddled with katanas and shurikens. Gwen pleads with Kitty that this won't help him, and that indulging in this violence is only making things worse, and that Harry is being stripped of his agency. Realizing how Weapon X stripped her and Logan of their choice, Kitty relents and decides to go buy time for Gwen while she works out how she can cure Harry. Gwen calls Reed Richards for some advice on what to do with the symbiote. Reed points out that Gwen didn't go to help from Captain America and didn't hire a lawyer that wasn't the kingpin of crime. Seems pretty obvious why, since there's only one thing you both want, he says. 
Wolverine and the lizard continue their bloody fight with most of the hand ninjas dead now. Madripoor police show up and start firing on the two. While the lizard is distracted dispatching the cops, Wolverine goes for the kill but Shadowcat arrives in time to phase in the claws and save Harry. Gwen shows up with her isotopes while Kitty phases the lizard's tail into the ground, giving Gwen long enough to get the isotopes close enough to the wounds in the lizard to create the Venom symbiote. Harry is cured, but a new monster is born. Meanwhile, back in New York, the wolf angrily confronts a guilty Foggy as George Stacy is in a critical condition as the ambulance paramedics use a defibrillator to resuscitate him. That's our uh, arc. That's Predators. That's only um, just the beginning of what's next for Gwen. Yes. Yeah, no, um, I, I think definitely the next sort of chunk of the ongoing is all sort of one it flows a lot more it's not as segmented like um we're going to sort of have a little bit of a break in the action there's technically like spider gwen number 23 but that's like a mary jane's one shot which only briefly references this arc and then of course is gwenum which basically attaches onto this and then there's life and times of gwen stacy which again directly follows on again uh, from from the Guanamark, it's all sort of one cliffhanger after another. It's it's a continuous series of events. So before we uh, get into our thoughts for this episode, something we always like to do is tally up the total of the Stacy swear jar so far. And um, yeah, Gwen was uh, pretty salty during Predators because you know she's stressed out. Definitely, yeah, it's reasonable that she would feel comfortable with the cussing. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it six times in the sock? Yeah, a total of six times. So uh, the first three was in issue 19. When she first saw the Venom symbiote, she's like, what the fuck? Because she didn't know what she was getting into. Yeah. And then promptly criticized Murdoch for wanting her to bond with the symbiote, telling him that he's out of his fucking gourds. Yep. And then... Uh, after Norman pleads of her to save Harry, like she relents to Murdoch's plan to go to Madripoor and you know calls him an evil shit. <laughs> yeah, that's um definitely uh, a lot of negative reactions in that one scene there from Gwen. Not pleased with the way things went. And this is all happening in Oscorp. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's all in that one sort of that one scene with with Norman with the the glass office and Elsa Brock with the venom stuff. So yeah, it's um. It was, a, it was a lot revealed in that scene, a lot to react to. Yeah, and then uh, she did it twice in number 20, and this is because uh, of Wolverine and Kitty, but the first time was with Wolverine, because when she was fighting him, she didn't know who she was going up against, and she's like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> yeah. And then later, you know, when Kitty and Logan are duking it out with each other because they both want the bounty, Gwen remarks that, they're fucking insane. Yeah, I, they, they kind of sort of come out of the blue, I guess, for Gwen. Um, obviously, within the context of the story, is reason for them being there. But but as far as Gwen's concerned, she's like, was not prepared for them at all, um, really, to show up. It's because, you know, you got two people with, as Harry would put it, murder hands that are out to get them. Yeah, they're a pair in this, for sure. I, I, I like how they're used in, in this arc. It's quite It's quite cool. And then the last time that she swore in Predators in number 21 when she makes her phone call to Murdoch. And then she's like, 
well, fuck you, Murdoch. Yeah, yeah, she properly rejects him here. Like, properly, like, actively tries to, to not do what he wants. I mean, unsuccessfully, but, but she does try to, to not do that. So there is that aspect here, um, I think. But, but yeah, what are we on? I see $31 in the Stacey Square jar. Yep, as of Predators, we have $31. So I think that's enough for a movie ticket right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Canadian money. I think it can go either way. Right, that's fair. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, uh, definitely. And I think that's reflective of overall. This is quite a dense arc, I'd say, especially after last week. There's a lot of character work. There's a lot of stuff going off. There's a lot to react to. Um, and that and really comes through reading this arc. And, 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 you know, even doing the synopsis for this took me a whole lot longer than it did for the last one. And that last one was a, two issues longer. So, um, yeah, there's a lot, lot, lot to sort of get into. I think the main through line here is um, Gwen's decision over having to bond to the Venom symbiote. It's sort of having the, the relatively unselfish motive of, of wanting to help Harry at the same time as having uh, perhaps the more selfish motive of wanting to wanting to get like um, her powers back on a more permanent basis. Yeah, because you know when she first saw the symbiote, she was freaked out about you know how it killed the rat, and Elsa's explanation didn't seem to make it any better for Gwen. Yeah, um, like she gives a lot of negative reactions here, but uh, there is a conflict here because obviously, unlike there, there's a, there's a two sides to it. Gwen doesn't like the Venom symbiote. She doesn't like Murdoch. She doesn't like this whole situation. But as Reed points out, like she has control over the situation. She could decide to be in a different one. Like she could have gone to Captain America, um, and it could be her chasing down Harry and not like Wolverine, and that would obviously be more ideal. And 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 you know, like this this would all look different. You know, she could have had a normal lawyer who who wasn't um you know evil but she has chosen this specifically and as it's progressed like murdoch is now he, he actively rewards her with the spider power-ups um and you know like the, the legal services for george um it's no longer about like trying to clear her name or, or reveal the department's wrongdoings she just wants to get um her dad out of jail um so it's this whole there's definitely sort of two explanations you can have for everything that's going on here like there's the unselfish explanation that she's just sort of having to work along with murdoch and do all these sort of morally dubious things because she has to but but also at the same time that that there is a there is an agency to all of this that she does sort of enjoy the power and and she does have an unhealthy relationship with it uh, and that does lead her to to create the venom symbiote um at the end of this arc so um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting dichotomy there. You noticed how I'm um, conflicting emotions of the symbiote. Like at first, like she's totally against it because you know she's worried that she's gonna turn out to be some sort of freak if she bonds with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, um, that's obviously the the the, the main concern uh, for her right off the bat is the you know effect it have um, there. Yeah, it's uh like she doesn't want to be a science experiment like that poor rat. So yeah, um, there's the immediate physical danger of it, I guess, that comes into play. But then, you know, at the same time, you know, she needs a, mo a much more permanent power source. So that's why she's all like flip floppy about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and like in a traditional uh, Peter Parker Spider-Man story, it, it would end with, with some sort of contrived reason 
for Pete to get his powers back on a, on a permanent basis, but but we're not reading one of those stories right now. We're reading uh, a Spider-Gwen comic, um, so it sort of wants to book the trend a bit more and, and do something different, and, and we'll get that, and we'll, we'll see how they sort of move forward with this uh, sort of power loss uh, status quo, really. Um, so, yeah, it's... um. It, I think it's very, very interesting, and and it's uh it's obviously something that they're going to get into with the Guanamark, uh, definitely, and uh, yeah, it's uh it's really, really cool, and also like just getting into the Venom symbiote a bit, um, the way they've set it up, I think, is really, really cool because it's not like, you know, they haven't used Clintar, and they haven't done like, um, two scientists in a lab were working on a cure for cancer, and one day they created a, a an evil symbiote parasite thing. You know, um, they've sort of tried to work in all of the prior world building they've done with the, the weird evil lab experiment stuff. Um, so that includes like the spider power-ups and they, they sort of descended from the alien spiders we were introduced to in Jesse Drew's origin story. So he's um, Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman from Earth 616's Earth 65 counterpart we met and he um, he got spider powers from being attacked by these alien spiders and through uh, Cindy Moon sort of trying to stabilize him. And he's then sort of like his presence within the organization and Cindy Moon's experiments means that they were sort of able to take that science and then create the spider that bit Gwen and all of these spider power-ups they've been using. It's all descended from that. But at the same time, they also use that same research to help Kurt Connors along with his uh, lizard mutagen. And Peter Parker then eventually obviously perfected that. So they're cousins in in the sense that they're both descendants of these alien spiders. And the way that like they combine creating a whole new uh, like mutants thing uh, is, is very, very cool. And, and we'll get into how Venom 65 works in a bit more detail, um, obviously in a couple of weeks. But there is, um, I, I really like this drawback here where it is very much a parasite. It does kill the hosts it bonds to um, because it's, it's radioactive. And the fact that only individuals who, have, who are able to um, survive radiation can wear it, I think is a, is a really nifty aspect to the, um, to the symbiote. Because it means that they can't just have like that sort of whole, that whole gimmick where Venom symbiotes just bounce between different people and like just anybody can have a symbiote it does mean it's a bit more um limited and they have to sort of um and, and it also means that it sort of it almost feels like it's chosen for gwen who obviously has that radioactive immunity from from being bitten by a radioactive spider yeah, you mean like uh, an exclusive thing right yeah like it's you know they uh it's like in the story she can't just pass it off onto somebody else or whatever like it's something that's like specifically compatible with her so um that's um you know like they've they've found i think meaningful and not contrived but like genuinely like well thought out reasons venom 65 to be and to be in the way that it is um i I think is quite interesting yeah that's a uh a less convoluted way to put how the properties of the venom symbiote on earth 65 works although i'm kind of thinking um I'm not even sure if Planet Clintar actually exists on Earth-65. Possibly. Um, there's nothing to rule it out, but I would imagine if this is how they've already done symbiotes, that they wouldn't want to do them again. Um, so I would say that they're just not going to do um, like Clintar symbiotes, as we know them from Earth-616 and Earth-65. 
and that they would rather derive it from all of this stuff with, with Venom being created by, by Elsa Brock. And, uh, well, I say by Elsa Brock, but being discovered by Elsa Brock, rather, I'd just say Gwen who created it. At least it's still partially extraterrestrial in origin, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I would I would argue it's not it's not a lab origin, it's not an artificial origin, but it's also not fully alien. It's it's a hybrid of the two. And it you know, it's it combines both of those things to create um a new sort of approach to symbiotes, which I find very interesting and I think I sometimes see it referred to as like an artificial symbiote or a man made symbiote, like from like official Marvel stuff in um in recent comics but i i would say that's not accurate and i would argue it is indeed a hybrid of the two and it, it you know it is a living thing um absolutely it's um you know it's derived from living material and you know it was grown and inside of lizard stuff um so yeah like is there a technical term for not quite artificial but it's not quite organic either i, I don't know um Bit of both. That's that's our technical term at the moment. Bit of both, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, and they, and they sort of find a way to use um Eddie Brock's namesake, sort of. I would kind of consider her for Earth sixty five's purposes a gender swapped Eddie Brock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's absolutely his counterpart here, and in, in this reality, and um, you know, like she has that same sort of ambition. As Eddie Brock does. Except, you know, unlike most of the other Eddies in the multiverse, she's a scientist instead of a journalist, but she's still got that ambition that journalists get, I guess. I suppose, yeah. No, I'm that same sort of... I I think she's got a similar drive to Eddie Brock that sort of... And the way that she views the risk-taking, like she doesn't like the way that Matt Murdock went about it and and all of that seems sort of in line with her doing this for sort of, uh, you know, like... Like prideful purposes, I guess. But yeah, she sort of creates Venom, but she doesn't really. Like some people say that she created Gwen symbiote. She didn't. She created a symbiote, the one that bonded to the rat, but that was like a tiny little thing. Um, it's more like a prototype just to show it off to Gwen. Yeah. And, you know, I have to wonder if if the ability to create symbiotes is limited by the amount of people who have been mutated by the lizard serum and um, that limits like the ability to just like manufacture symbiotes because that would become um, a whole thing. So, so maybe like that was all she could sort of create with her resources that she had. But yeah, like that initial symbiote that we see that, that kills the rat, we never see that again. That's just a little sample thing. So we, I presume that's just disappeared off the face of the earth. But uh, remember the um, the principle that um, you know if the host dies, the symbiote dies too. Yes, and I I, li- I would like to see them try and use that for Earth sixty five, try and make it so that it feels a bit more um, fun. Actually, they don't really do that on Earth six one six, do they? Uh, maybe not. While if uh, the host is killed while the symbiote is on, you know, just like when um, Eddie stabbed Donna Diego during um, Rick Remender's run. The symbiote died too until it was revived by Null during Abscarn Scream. Oh, I see. Okay, that rule's cool. I like that as um, you know, stuff that sort of makes the symbiotes I think rarer. That would help a bit more with it. But yeah, it's um, it it is absolutely sort of a, a demonstration symbiote for Norman, and uh, it doesn't get 
much play. It does actually initially like Gwen, like it, it like it's drawn to her, like through the glass they have set up around it. I'm guessing it's sensing the leftover radiation in her blood. It must be, and and like it knows that she would make a good host. Um, that said, I I like the way that they do it, where Elsa Brock isn't the one to create the Venom symbiote, and it's actually Gwen. Like in the end, Gwen creates her own Venom symbiote, and I think that's very cool, like thematically, and the the way that they approach her agency in the story and the choices that she's making. I think that's a that's a satisfying conclusion to that it being this thing that she's created instead of this it being a sort of random thing that, that falls on her it's it's something that she seeks out you know yeah i think if anything elsa just taught her how to create the venom symbiote yeah yeah she obviously she came up with the method and the terminology because uh, i i don't think gwen 65 is is really scientifically inclined so you know having that there to sort of fill in that you know provide that explanation and that exposition i think is important who else do we have? Well, we have Norman. Like the last we saw of Norman, uh, well, as to his first introduction, rather, was when Frank Castle approached him during uh, the Weapon of Choice arc and asked if um, he could study the radioactive isotope that had fallen off Gwen um, at some point during a fight. And and that we saw Norman that one time. We haven't seen him since, but he's he's sort of here now and it appears he handed over that isotope to Elsa to look at, and then Murdoch sort of got wind of all of this and arranged for Elsa to start sort of working on it as a solution for Gwen's uh, power situation as well. And uh, yeah, this is all happening under Norman's nose without his realization, and it sort of all comes down on him in this one scene where he's like, he sort of has to reckon with the fact of what he's done, particularly with Harry, because he rejects he sort of pushes Harry away and he's kind of, he's worried about how it'll look and the embarrassing nature of it. Yeah, I think that's a characteristic of what most Norman Osborns would be like. They just care about themselves. But, you know, at the same time, even though he rejects him, he's still concerned about Harry's safety. Yeah, no, it's, um, he, yeah, right. So he's, it just, it just came secondary to, to these other things because, um, you know, he absolutely is, um, you know he's not a good person. You know he's a, he's a billionaire. He's a CEO. They, men- they actually mention in this arc that his tax returns are criminal. Um, he's obviously caught up in, in some uh, shady stuff with regards to the kind of science and technology weapons stuff they were working on at Oscorp. That's been we've glimpsed at through Harry's Green Goblin phase. Um, but he it, like Norman Osborn isn't the Green Goblin. He isn't um, you know he isn't a supervillain. At least not at this point or really any point. You know, he's still, um, you know, a regular person uh, who isn't insane. Um, so he he does have that sort of base concern for Harry that does show, and and does and does actually result in in Gwen um, agreeing to all of this. It was it was Norman's plea that convinced her to go help Harry, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, especially since you know Harry is one of her best friends, and but the fact that Norman had to plead with her to save harry yeah i think it was more like obviously gwen wanted to help harry but but to do it on murdoch's terms was was pretty that's a hard thing to accept i guess and um norman there was obviously a bit more keen to go along with with what murdoch was proposing um and and hence that sort of that whole plea um so yeah it's um 
I think interesting how they they handle Norman Osborn because he doesn't really um he doesn't really appear after this point. He's he's obviously around uh, in the background doing stuff, but he doesn't really get much of a role outside of that one scene. No, I think this is the last time he shows up. Yeah, so he's he's used in um in a very restrained way for a spider story. I have to say, which you know I I suppose is commendable really because Cannibal becomes about the Osborns in some of these stories where they. But but yeah, he's um, it's sort of it, it, he gets given the backseat for this particular spider story, which is, which is interesting. Um, yeah. he's he's still there to use for future stuff, though. I I will say, like if they ever come back to this character, there's a lot to work with. As them, uh, you know that that conflict between his his love of his company, uh, and money versus his you know his care for his son. You know, there's a lot to to dig into there that that, that was initially laid in the groundwork here that. You know, I'm sure somebody could do some interesting stuff with if if they wanted to use a, a Norman in a Spider Gwen story. Yeah. But like, at least this Norman, well, to our knowledge anyway, doesn't have insanity. Yeah, he doesn't. He's doing all right in that department. So good for him. Should we get to the younger Osborne now? Yeah, yeah. So um, Harry returns after not being around for like three or so arcs. So he's like. I will say it's almost like a cliffhanger at the end of Greater Power, where you expect to see him in some capacity, but we we don't really see him for a very very long time, and it's only just now that it's picking up what's happened there. So he's fled to Mandrapur, um, still infected with the lizard stuff. Oh yeah, I'm just wondering um, how he was able to go from New York to Mandrapur in the course of I'm just gonna say several months because you know the holidays have passed. Yeah, I mean. Um, he does presumably have a lot of wealth and resources still at his disposal in some sense, so maybe that helped a little bit. Um, and I'm just, but I'm just wondering when that flashback scene took place. I would imagine that happened almost immediately after Greater Power. Like I could imagine his first instinct would be to go to his dad and ask him for help, and then realizing that he's got to sort of go it alone after that point, and then he ends up in Madripoor. So yeah, he's hunted by S.H.I.E.L.D., he's hunted by the Hand, both of which he's sort of had some involvement with in the past, um, and he's, you know, he's hurt both, so that's his whole stick. He's really got his back to the wall here. Especially since he's slowly becoming the lizard throughout this arc, trying to hold it back. Yeah, and that's like the ticking time bomb, which I think drives a lot of the stakes and the urgency, and this is is to the extent to which, like, it, it does feel... It's imminently about to all go wrong. Um, like the scene where he's eating the rat is like, oof. Well, he tries to eat the rat anyway. Um, and, and that sort of, you know, it provides real weight to this arc because it does often go wrong for Harry Osborns. Like all the time it goes wrong for Harry Osborns. There's very few times Harry Osborn appears and it doesn't go horribly wrong and he doesn't become a supervillain. Um, and, and in this arc, we sort of, we have that as the sort of, problem here like we know he's um reformed after greater power but he's still um struck with this sort of curse of the lizard right um and oh yeah i'm also wondering if with his wealth and yet he has to resort to living it up in the slums having to steal from the grocery store like do you think he just ran out of money maybe 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 he had like enough to get him to sort of run away and survive for this point for this long but not like enough to like avoid becoming homeless entirely but i would imagine 
at the start he would have had wealth and resources that he doesn't months and months into this sort of whole process of running away because i'm i'm probably assuming that based on uh the location of Madripoor where he's living it up i'm kind of thinking that's low town because remember how a um, Madripoor is divided into high town where the rich are and then uh low town which is the slums Oh yeah, he's absolutely in the slums here. No, definitely. Uh, I think like the sort of tent slash shack he has set up. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a really sort of rough situation. By the time we get to this point, you know, he even calls Gwen on like a payphone. It's a rough situation for the guy. Yeah, he is not in a good place at all. Yeah, and and um, like the resolution of this arc, I would say, is the unburdening of Harry Osborne. Like they take away the threat here of him becoming the lizard. He obviously pass it on to somebody else, but um, he sort of, he doesn't have to worry about that now. And uh, presumably with that, she'll leave him alone and the hand of less interest in him. Like the really, I would get, I'd say, I'd guess more after the, um, after the lizard mutagen that was inside of him. And now he's stripped to that. So good for him, I guess. Yeah. But, um, after that scene where the symbiote is drawn out of him, he's never seen again, well, during the Latour era anyway. Yeah, he does sort of get dropped from the narrative here. And and this, yeah, uh, Harold's born getting dropped by the uh, Spider-Gwen comics all of a sudden is ha- is not the last time it happens. Um, so I, I kind of feel bad for him in that front. But uh, yeah, he's um he doesn't appear again in this ongoing. Um, so this is his sort of resolution to his long-running arc is that um, ultimately Gwen saves him and um, he isn't the lizard anymore. So good for Harry Osborn. Let's see what happens for everybody else. Yeah, like uh, we got Matt Murdock right here. Yeah, lots of Matt Murdock. Uh, and in fact, we just get a lot of Matt Murdock for a long time now, I guess. Um, yeah, he's um, very present and, you know, it's very explicit at this point that Matt Murdock's plan is to manipulate Gwen into sort of becoming a cartoon evil person like him. Like that's his motivation here. Like there's this whole scene where, where Elsa Brock's like, so, you know, you're going to give Gwen these power-ups, but you will have less control over her. And he's like, yeah, but it's all about my evil machinations to make Gwen evil. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's not, it's not really a practical thing that he's doing. He's not doing, he's not hyper-focused, on Spider-Woman um, and Gwen Stacy because it's uh, financially responsible or it's good for his crime empire or it's the best way for him to accumulate power. For him, it's about proving this point and, and making Gwen evil. Um, and, and they do dig into that a bit more. But, you know, absolutely, that's, that's what's happening here. And he's got, I'd say, fingers in every pie in terms of all of the evil stuff going on. Because, um, yeah. obviously, he manipulated Elsa Brock. He arranged... The stuff with Boggy Nelson and Rhino. Um, he's sending the Hand Ninja after Gwen and Harry, and so he's got, you know, he's got it all sort of locked down. He's got this whole plan, and he's sort of executing it across the board, reasonably successfully. Well, he's not called the Kingpin for nothing, right? Yeah, and I think um, he's very formidable. I'd argue at this point in, in the book. It's even to the point where, um, you know, he's always harassing Gwen to uh, honor the deal that she and her father made with him, or else. Yeah, yeah. No, he's um, he gets really frustrated at that point. Um, and and I think maybe he's just trying to scare her. 
like he wasn't i don't i don't think he'd seriously do anything uh like he obviously like he still got that overriding goal of of corrupting gwen rather than killing or capturing what whatever so he has that in the back of his mind and um remember during that phone call uh he said that she was on strike too yeah he he's not i don't think he's too fussed about her going off on her own way at that point because the plan's already in motion he's already revealed to her all the secrets about the venom symbiote um and at that point he he reckons that that gwen's uh i guess like lust for power will, will sort of drive the rest of his evil master plan so i don't think he's is nearly as broken up about gwen you know being like rebellious there is like she was with the whole situation with scorpion and and her father where he sort of flips out outside that police station yeah it was um very much um a shift there in tone like he's he's much more assured by the time that gwen's in madripoor because he knows all of these aspects to the machinery are, are going and 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 uh it's it's sort of the ball is already rolling at that point so he's 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 much smugger about it there he, he knows what he's about to do um as well because because gwen says to him in that scene uh something to the effect of you know like the cops will protect my dad right and, and he's like he's like Oh, but you, you know, like in his mind, he realizes what he's about to do is uh, is use the cops to to quite explicitly um, harm her father. Like in the text of the story, that that is what's going on there. So it's um, yeah, I feel like some of the cops are actually on Murdoch's payroll. Absolutely, and I think like I I think the whole justice system really is in terms of Earth sixty five is you know there is, is no no threat to him shield maybe but but the cops and the district attorney's office all of that is under his thumb uh, and he uh he uses that to his advantage here and i think even i mean the, the cop which does that to george the one who lets rhino in there he is corrupt and like he gets given a little bit of backstory and a couple of arcs down the line i guess but the whole situation there with them um, the cops in this story is it's uh they come up a lot i think there's a few instances like there's the it opens on the cop putting the is it the cashew nut stand right like the right yeah. start of the story spider gwen's uh at the cashew stand she's buying some snacks and the cop sees her and he's like oh you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna take spider woman in today and he pulls a gun on her and they have this whole back and forth about how you know where he tries to be like oh you're putting people in danger and like she turns to him and is like, "No, you're putting the people in danger here by like pulling the gun out and stuff." And I thought that exchange was very timely, and it's a it's a good sort of critique of of how that works. But then they they return to that in the same issue, and they have that little conversation where he talks with this veteran cop, and you think it's sort of gonna go in this direction where he's like, "You know, you shouldn't do that, buddy," and he's saying to him, "Yeah, so you shouldn't have like." Um, you know, pulled your gun out like that, and he's like, yeah, 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 and then he's like, you know, you should have just killed her, you should have just shot straight away, and you're like, whoa, okay, um, hang on, and and that that's that, right, like, that's the point they're making with that sort of, that whole um, institution, and, and it was very, um, I thought, yeah, it, it, it was it was quite dark, um, really. <laughs> At least we got our good cop in George. Uh, yeah, and, and, and you know, even there, when he was with the police, he was pretty dodgy, and and he only stops being dodgy once he quits. And I'd say the only one who sort of like even Dewolf, who 
is generally good also sort of participated in the whole torturing of of Alexei. Like she was a bystander for that. Although I guess I suppose she she does own up to it in this arc, as is revealed at the court trial. How they threw it was was through her testimony there, unbeknown to her, obviously. But yeah, it's um, I I don't know I don't know if they do really many good cops in this story. I mean, even Boyle does some, yeah, he does a bunch of weird stuff. He's it's I I yeah, it's generally quite critical of the police, I'd say. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, a lot more antagonistic than they're supposed to be. But yeah, as far as Spider-Man stories are concerned, is they'll they'll have like. You know, they'll have that one good detective. And I guess they do it with the wolf, which the hero goes to for advice while the rest of the force gives them maybe a harder time. But but overall, I'd say uh, the New York Police Department, as they're shown on Earth-65, is just a complete mess. Yeah, especially since um, Captain Stacy, like, he thinks, in his opinion, the whole trial is just to uh, share his take on the hunt for Spider-Woman. Yeah, and 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 his whole yeah, he's gonna air all of the department's sort of dirty laundry, right? And how they they allocated all of these resources on what was uh, ultimately a wasted effort in order to sort of, I don't know, like appease people's taste for vengeance. And you know, that's um in in of itself, I would say, is a very um you know, there's a lot of allegory there that you could probably draw out to sort of the real world the way that police work in the real world. I, th- I think especially with New York, where I'm um, definitely in, in the past, past 10 years um, when this comment was being written as well, they've been more intense and definitely the police state has grown in America overall through different things, such as the war on drugs. Um, and, and, and like the comic doesn't get into all of that, but it's, I feel a lot of the sentiment has grown out of seeing a lot of that stuff in, in the world. And they sort of, tackle a lot of that in sort of the subtext of a lot of these scenes i think especially since um foggy and murdoch didn't want george to take trial you know they used the police and the legal system anyway to their advantage yeah they absolutely don't and it's you know they work in tandem there really to save face yeah and you know um george had to pay the price by having to get beat up by the rhino Right, and that and that's the thing. Like, um, it's super rare that like it's a lot harder to get cops charged with crimes. Like, often the police departments and the uh, and the attorney officers will, will will actively work to protect the, them, at least disproportionately compared to um, you know regular uh, criminals. So, um, obviously, it's a complete inverse of that because because George absolutely does want to be tried here. But speaking to, to sort of the, the way those systems would work in real life, that would be the sort of re- response of, is to, to sort of react negatively to that and to try and suppress that. And um, Mur- Murdoch's at the same time here, he obviously has the, the, the sort of the ulterior motive of, of wanting to, to provoke Gwen. And, and there's that at play, of course, but from Foggy Nelson's perspective, he doesn't know about any of that. He's doing this purely to, to save face uh, for the department and the cop, which does the deed mentions this like he didn't follow the orders etc etc so that was uh i think that was a really interesting moment like um captain stacy is a good cop because he's a bad cop uh, if that makes sense like he's a good person because he's bad at being a cop um so uh you know uh, i think that's um you're saying that he's good at being a bad cop 
Right, like, or um, he he's a good cop, but he's just doing a bad job. Well, no, in in the sense that uh, he's you know, if he if he was being like a, you know good at his job, he'd be doing bad things. But because um, because he's actively trying to do the right thing, he's not doing his job as a police captain very well. Like he stopped doing it altogether, even at this point in the story. Um, so yeah, it's uh, that that sort of an aspect to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, we have Wolverine. Yeah, uh, we get Wolverine sixty five is um is really interesting because uh, he's not. I want to say he's not a mutant. It's never explicitly stated that um, he was a mutant, right? But mutants do exist on Earth sixty five because later there is an offhanded remark about mutants. Yeah, yeah. So it's um uh, Earth sixty five isn't mutantless, but we we really don't have any standout examples of characters actively saying, "Oh, hey, I'm a mutant." Wolverine here, like the powers he has appear to come from these experiments done on him. So he is like, he starts out like in feudal Japan as this legendary samurai who gets given this um, concoction or potion. Yeah, he's cursed by a witch. Yeah, but by, a, by a witch or like sorcerer person and um and like the, it's not immortality it's uh, a day for every life he's killed and a day for every life he'll take yeah that's more like longevity yeah so so the, the idea being that as long as he keeps killing he's he's cursed to sort of live forever which is which is really like oof you know that's uh, i think that's yeah. yeah and he looks about the same age as he did in feudal japan yeah so he's um you know, he so the implication being that he's killing a lot most days, which is really upsetting. I think, um, in terms of like, I, I mean, in, in like a character sort of narrative sense, um, but but yeah, he's um, he, his his character conflict is, is quite sad, and the fact that he's lost his memories and isn't really aware of this curse anymore is the implication. So he's he's cursed by this this past he doesn't remember is the caption, and um, yeah, like. It's, it's um rough for him. Yeah, and he even falls in with Weapon X just like his 616 counterpart. Yeah, and he he appears to get his claws and a metal skeleton from the Weapon X program of Earth-65. He doesn't show the claws before that point. So it, it does seem like basically all of his powers, so his, um, his immortality, not immortality, his claws, his metal skeleton, it's all coming from external forces as opposed to being a mutant yeah so uh, yeah i'm guessing you know not a mutant but rather a mutate yeah mutate so which is your sort of standard um sort of super powered person uh they also introduce shadow cat and we we, we call it we call her shadow cat we use the name uh kitty and stuff but uh she's absolutely a combination of kitty pride and laura kinney um she has claws um and she's able to phase through things and yeah, she's she's got um, a history in Weapon X, which is there. She's also a questionable not mutant or something, because we don't know with Kitty either if she's a mutant or not. Yeah, less of her story is shown, but it's definitely bound up with um, Logan's in the sense that it, it does seem like they used Kitty's ability to phase through things to bond Logan with the metal in his skeleton, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess that's the most plausible way to put it. Yeah, that that seems to be what the panels indicate. They don't say in the text, but that that does appear to be what the the artwork is showing. And um, like uh, Kitty has the claws, but they're like blue. Um, so I don't I don't know if it's metal or not. But like 
they use the combination of her phasing and the claws in a really interesting way i think and uh yeah it it's it's uh it's very much a interesting combination of those two power sets there and um she's a fun fun character and she even behaves like logan too you know she's saying bub like that's his thing yeah and i wonder what like the relation is there like uh is she like in some way a genetic clone or if she's just more of a like a surrogate daughter to logan um that he picked up from the weapon x program that that he's he's obviously not like on great terms with like they're not um like they fight each other initially uh, before allying with with each other but yeah there there's a history there where kitty does care for logan and presumably the vice versa so yeah there's um but they're they're sort of they're not they're not super tight about things no because uh, remember uh when kitty was being incapacitated later she gets up saying like why do you have to be breathing down my neck yeah that he might be acting like a helicopter parent maybe but yeah or, or maybe they just end up on a lot of the same sort of competing for the same missions and bounties and stuff uh, maybe it's like that but um they're sort of all calling him an old man in that same sentence uh, when she's complaining about him breathing down her neck sort of has a sort of element of of them being endeared to one another um which i thought was like that, that sort of shone through there as well um so even when they're not friends they, they sort of they're just co-workers yeah like they're it's it's more of a friendly competition they, you don't get arch rivals uh vibes from them and uh, apparently it was uh logan's idea for them to work together so yeah maybe there's um yeah I, I... would this friendly be in quotes just given how hostile she was to him initially yeah yeah it's um it's wolverines for you that's how they do things it's um or is a kitty just being another angsty teenage like does she look old enough to be teenage I I don't know. I feel like she might be a bit older. Like I got the sense that she had more experience than Gwen in terms of her fighting style and, and like the confidence that she showed. But she she could be a teenager, right? Or at least in her twenties. Yeah, I think I think in her twenties would be a good guess. It's usually the sort of age they go for with most of the superheroes in these comics. Um, but yeah, um, especially like she's in contrast with Six One Six Kitty, who. You know, in the uh, main Marvel universe, you know, Kitty is nice and sweet and kind. Well, um, she's definitely had a dark turn lately. Um, but but yeah. Um, like in her early years. Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, Kitty 65 is more, um, it's definitely a bit more uh, rougher than what we've seen of uh, of 616 Kitty for sure. And, and I think in that sense, it's a bit more aligned with Laura Kinney of the sort of strong, doesn't really like people type. Well, at least like um, this kitty like didn't leave anyone at the altar at the last second. That was a thing which happened. Remember, uh, X Men Gold number thirty, uh, Kitty and Colossus were all set to marry, but she backed out at the last second. Oh my goodness, they were gonna marry those two characters. How did I don't know how I missed that. Um, but at least Rogue and Gambit got to get married at the ceremony. I think that was probably for the best. Those two get married. Yep, that's um, Kitty and Colossus. I need to read more X-Men comics. I do. Um, yeah, they've had a off-again, on-again relationship for years. Seems like there's a bit of an age gap there. Um, yeah. Um, I've, I've read a lot of all-new Wolverine. That's my that's my grounding in X-Men comics. Um, but yeah, um, I do need to read more, I suppose. Um, so, who who else we got to talk about here? Is there much to say about the Rhino? Yeah, so... Um, 
like where was he where, where was he last he was in um was it the initial arc was it in most wanted i think it was edge of spider-verse number two was the last time we saw of him so this has been a while yeah so he's been going through the justice system for a while and they're doing this court case and matt murdoch realizes that he needs somebody with like a personal history with george stacy to you know beat him up in prison jail even uh, and realizes he's got sort of um rhino who he can easily manipulate um so i think that's sort of the reasoning for the character coming back there um and he he comes back now more explicitly named as the rhino um we see his bulletproof as well he takes like three handgun shots at close range from gene dwarf so you know he's um he's a tough guy and he yeah he he does a lot of damage he takes out george stacy in a in a whew, yeah it was rough i wouldn't be surprised if um if that was just him holding back or if that was just blunt force yeah i mean um he did enough damage to um to to sort of da- damage his his heart so um and and that is a uh, you know that that comes up later in the arc here so it's yeah he he do, he does a lot of damage he's he he's, you know he he loses his heart fails so um it wasn't a killing blow but you know enough for him to be satisfied with the job being done i i i it, it, they never actually say whether or not kingpin ordered him to to kill George Stacy, you know, just critically injure would would work. But yeah, I think what they're doing here with Rhino is he's he's sort of just an extension of Murdoch's plan for for Gwen and stuff. He's simply a means to an end. Yeah, he is, and and I think he always has been. Um, he he's a bit um, unfortunately he's a bit sort of one dimensional. I think in that aspect, he doesn't have a lot of individual choices that he makes. He just sort of goes along with what whatever Murdoch's setting him up to do um so that's sort of the just the, the direction that things um sort of take for him really yeah, and we'll I, get more of rhino and i think it's um mostly because you know um rhino is excited that murdoch bailed him out of trial yeah and yeah no like i think he was really pleased about that but he does like there's that moment of realization when murdoch says that the tab is due and you see his his reaction because he goes from being very celebratory and then matt says that and it's like oh i see and um his face falls and uh yeah he's he's clearly not super pleased about having to work for murdoch but yeah that's his role yeah a means to an end mm. yeah um who who else uh we got foggy nelson had quite a bit of um quite a few panels and stuff in this I think like yeah, a scene and a half. Yeah, I guess we already mentioned how he's sort of part of that whole corrupt uh, district attorney's office, um, and he's yeah. I think overall he is he very much guilty about what he's doing, but it very much seems to be what he's agreed to happen. Like he's agreed for um for George Stacy to be to be offed like this, and he's clearly not happy about it. But he um. Yeah, no, he he's gone along with it thus far, and uh, not a good dude. He seems a lot weaker morally, uh, not necessarily on him, but but more his proximity to Matt Murdock. Because uh, traditionally, isn't Foggy supposed to be like really close to Matt? 
Yeah, like and and then six one six, well, they're like defense attorneys together, and they do good lawyer work. Um, but here we see that fucking Nelson's, you know, he's working for the district attorney, so he's he's a cop. Uh, he's an, well, an extension of the justice system as opposed to somebody who who protects um, those being charged. And it's it's an inversion of that in the same way that you know Matt Murdock is a superhero, but but now he's a supervillain here on Earth sixty five. So it's the same, he gets given the same treatment and in the same way that, you know, he would support Matt Murdock in the sort of the, the, the cases they'd fight in 616 and 65, he's sort of helping Matt Murdock with his uh, supervillain machinations and, 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 and designs for New York and stuff. So it's, um, he seems like he doesn't have much of a backbone with regards to standing up to Matt. And I think, I think a lot of that is the reason that things go the way they do. Like without Matt's presence, maybe Foggy, you know, he obviously wouldn't be a great dude, but he wouldn't be like doing evil stuff by like having somebody critically, potentially killed, uh, but critically hurt in 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 jail. Like uh, that that's very much from Matt's end, but sort of something that he's gone along with and given approval for, obviously. Yeah, and remember that Foggy didn't even want to prosecute in the first place. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't, and 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 overall, like the department didn't uh didn't really want to put George on the stand at all. But it's it's sort of George's insistence on his guilt and the presence of public interest in it, which means they have to do it. Like, there's no way around it without it looking shady, or outright killing or severely injuring um Captain Stacy. So, um, that's sort of the the reasoning they went with it there. But we yeah. do get to hear more of Foggy down the line. He gets more to do, I think, in terms of his individual agency outside yeah. of Murdoch, which um, which gives a bit more insight to him, I would say. The art in this arc is inconsistent. Like I am, I I really uh. Yeah, issue twenty two was where I had the most uh gripe with. Yeah, and and like sometimes like we'll get like a page or a panel like that uh that closing sort of few panels. In Spider-Gwen number 19, where uh, we see Gwen swing off into the Madripoor skyline, um, and like Logan's there, the, those pounds look great. I mean, it looks so pretty. Like the the way they do all the Madripoor scenes, and the way they they, they really make it feel like a living, breathing place with people living there, and and you know, it, it's a very, you know, they do a really good job with that. But then there's sometimes there's other other scenes where I'm reading it, and it's like Robbie Rodriguez is just sort of phoning it in uh and, and like you, you know his lines are not clean on his best days um but but sometimes it's just it's just disappointing like it's um yeah, it was like just a last minute yeah it, do, it does it does feel increasingly last minute and um yeah so some of the scenes in that alleyway were a bit uninspired i'd say some of the character scenes he just sort of he's not really as into it i think the moment people start moving in the comic uh, he's suddenly there but like sometimes there's like just scenes where they're like there's dialogue and it's just more dialogue and he's not super invested in it maybe and and it just you do sort of get that vibe and and it does seem like maybe he ran out of time with this arc and they had to bring in is it um how do i say his name i think maybe it's pronounced a jorge coelho so Jorge Coelho's um, art here, which is fine. It's good art. You know, he does sort of make the lizard look like a dinosaur, which is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, it's, um, 
you know, but it's just very jarring to go in the same issue from Robbie Rodriguez's art to Jorge Coelho's art and then back to Robbie Rodriguez's art for the last two pages. Um, oh, especially during, you know, the birth of the Venom symbiote. It looks like it's coming straight out of his ass. Yeah, that's that's a really straight. I mean, it's supposed to be this really profound panel page splash page and this is the reveal of the venom symbiote of earth 65 and it does appear to be exiting harry through his butt um so yeah um i'm looking at it and i don't think that was the artist's intention um yeah it just it is sort of angled like differently but but yeah initial first glance that is how it appears it's not great yeah i feel like um that scene could have been drawn a different way yeah, I think so too. Um, Maybe if Harry was flipped over, like in a different position, he's kind of turned over. Just, um, just not really enough to sell the audience on it. It's you know, one of those um things. But yeah, that that is the last panel, right? This this thing happening to Harry, where it looks like the symbiote is escaping his butt. That's the last time we see this guy until the next run of Spider Gwen. So you know, he has a raw deal in his comics. Yeah, it's kind of awkward that after having this thing taken out of him, people just forget about him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. He gets used and abused by the plot quite a bit, I think. Yeah, uh, he's... he, But yeah, that's that's his happy ending. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I guess it's one... One of those memes where, um, you know, you're living out your best life and then the person in the background is drowning and then you say, this isn't about them right now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's that sort of a vibe. Like, they put Harry Osborn through the ringer, all these awful, terrible things happening to him and most of it occurring off, screw off panel. Um, and um, then when he does show up, he gets dropped by the story and it's like... But yeah, he, do he does get a proper resolution here, I guess. Um, it, it maybe just needs... Like another panel, maybe, I think, at some point in the arc to say, hey, he's alive, he's happy, he's sort of, you know, just just out there doing his thing, not being a lizard. And, you know, I think that would have been fine. But the way it sort of just, it, it like quickly resolves, why well, doesn't quickly resolve? It resolves his issue and then immediately drops him. It's like, you know. Because, um, yeah, it's like, you know, this ain't about him right now. It isn't. It isn't, to be fair. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, poor guy, poor guy. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh, that's Harry Osborn. We'll we'll talk about him again in like two months. <laughs> I'm so well, a version of him during a Spider Geddon. Okay. Oh yeah, I suppose it does. Yeah. Um. So I guess we'll talk about him then. Um. Not Harry sixty five, but but like another Harry. Yeah, Harry one three oh nine. I don't know. I don't think I've got that right. Thirty one oh nine. I remembered a number. All oh, my days. Wow, that's insane. I don't normally do that. Um. Harry 3109. Yeah, we talk about him a bit. He also has a hard time of it. Um, oh, yeah, no. But we'll <laughs> talk about that during the Spider-Geddon episode in a few weeks. Yeah, I, yes. Yeah, we will. I'm looking forward to that one, actually. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's... Um, I think that's our... Um, yeah, I think that's been our episode. Mm, yeah, so uh, do we want to do concluding thoughts? I feel like we could. We got a bit of room for concluding thoughts here. Um, I'm guessing I'm just going to say... Um, like what I thought of this arc, they really should have uh, brought a proper ending to Harry instead of dropping him off the face of the earth. Yeah, you're like overall though. How did you feel about? Yeah, I liked all of the action and the uh, character development that Predator set up because you know obviously um going into the next art, this is just you know the appetizer for you know what's coming next because you know from Gwenham onwards as 
what I like to call the main course. For sure, I think um, it's it's very much a setup for a lot of that. But I think in and of, in and of itself, this arc is quite um, is, is really good, and it's very dense with um, you know characterizations for everybody. You know, everybody's making choices uh, left, right, and center, and they're doing it in in sort of unique and uh, meaningful ways to their characters. And, and I've um, really appreciated that through what I've read here. So it's um you know that's that's a that's a really sort of fun thing and i'm glad they've gotten back to that after last week's crossover which was which was very light on character work i think but at the same time they sort of they do combine it with i i'd say sort of this rising tension um between like matt what matt murdoch's planning but also like more immediately the the issues with um harry and the uh the lizard mutagen like they they set the stakes really well in that sense and, and obviously ends on this cliffhanger here and we'll, we'll get more of the stakes as we go along uh in in this run but but absolutely i think this this feels like a very breakneck very sort of fast but it's also a lot of stuff's happening and um it's happening in a meaningful way which which takes into account earth 65 um in a way that i really wish more of these comics did um and really utilizes the world here and, and builds on it um so yeah it's it's a really really solid arc and um yeah i I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it to people to read on their own if it, if it wasn't for the fact that it um it has that cliffhanger and is leading off from a bunch of other stuff it's probably one of the stronger arcs i'd say to come out of the spider gwen ghost spider comics it's very very fun yeah and i do think that you know when or if they ever revisit the wider world of earth 65 again i'd love to see elsa again i'd love to see you know um wolverine and kitty again norman yeah yeah all all of these characters here have like good foundations and um you know there's a lot to be explored there that's been left so yeah it's one one of those things i guess if they do pick it up again they've got a lot to work with here with you know madripoor as well because you know madripoor so beautiful mm, yeah like to have returned to the sort of that visual style would be really cool um so yeah i i think um yeah no i'm i'm very much yeah definitely really like this arc refreshing after last week Oh, and I want to um, point out one final Easter egg. Did you notice at the beginning of Predators Part 2 um, on Logan's slashing lines, you will you can see Latour, Rodriguez, and Renzi's names? Yeah, that's fun. I like that page. Um, like the, the, the motion of characters, I think, is where Rodriguez really excels um, and creating a very dynamic feel. And, and you follow the action in a really fun way. And then to sort of combine that with it being the credits for the um, artists and, and the writer was, was really cool. Um, I thought that was um, really cool. Yeah, and I think the reason why Madripoor is beautiful is because of Renzi's colors on it. Yeah, Ren- Renzi very much does a lot of the heavy lifting, I think, for setting the tone and the vibe of Earth-65. It, it's very much his out there coloring, which makes it feel different and makes it feel uh you know it sets the tone and sets the vibe in a really meaningful way and i think without his colors this this comic would not be the same he yeah. he's really one of the best colorists in the game and, and it really shines in, in all of these yeah i'm just wondering theoretically if there is planet clintar on earth 65 do you think if renzi colored the planet it would look just as vibrant yeah, like he wouldn't do a big black goo ball. He'd, you know, he'd be out there doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm sure he'd, he'd have some kind of inspired idea to to sort of color it differently. And um, yeah, it's um, he's a very, very, very good colorist. Renzi. He's very um, he's got his very unique style that, that stands out on its own. 
yeah, I'm just wishing that um, if the book gets picked up again, if uh, they're going to bring him back. I hope they do. I hope they do. And, and, and they brought him back for Gwenham versus Carnage. Um, so it shows they remember him. And I think he's a colorist, so I can't imagine he's he's too busy. Um, but, but he is working on, on Mr. Miracle at the moment. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I hope he's got enough room in his schedule if they did want to make another Spider-Gwen uh, Ghost Spider book. I think he'd be a great fit for um for one of those, really. Yeah. Yeah. So um, did you want to start closing out this week? Is that all of our opinions already? Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think we're we're done with this arc here. There's a, a lot to cover, I think, and um, yeah, we had a good discussion. Um, so next week we're going to sort of uh, slow down a little bit. We're going to read just the issue Spider Gwen number twenty three, which is technically collected along with the Predators trade, but it's really very disconnected from that. It's uh, co-written and it's uh, the lines are done by uh, is it Hannah Blumenreich? Have I got that right? Yeah, Blumenreich. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's basically a Mary Jane's one-shot, and there's a strong romantic plot to it, and it's very, very good, um, and it'll be fun, and it's a bit lighter, uh, and it'll break up the, the arcs that we're doing here a bit. So we're going to be doing that next week. We'll put the links on what that is, and where to buy it, and uh, what to read, and that, again, that reading list, and, and how, to buy list, uh, how to buy page, even. Um, we're going to have that in the description so uh, please read that send in your thoughts um, and let us know what you think there's um, at gsgroupies uh, is our twitter if you want to tweet at us and there's also our email at gospidergroupies at gmail.com we'll discuss your thoughts if you send us them on both of those platforms there's others as well we'll put up a reddit thread uh, most weeks um, that you can also reply to we'll discuss your thoughts on so yeah um on the r spider gwen subreddit that is so yeah um yeah it's been it's been good uh, i've been pax and i've been abigail all right bye bye